welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. My name's Alex Clements and if you do need any new kit, especially heading into the winter months in Australia, please check out MAP's full range of apparel at map.cc. Today on the podcast, we've got an Instagram live that we recorded two weeks ago now with Sam Bewley, the Mitchelton Scott writer. We chat about how he's finding the transition out of lockdown, back into being able to train outside. We talk a little bit about the starting early days of his career. He started his career off with Lance Armstrong, of all people, and then into his now mentoring role, team leader, team captain on Mitchelton Scott. We also talk about Sam's newfound content passion uh, through isolation. He's launched his own podcast with George Bennett called The Social Distancing Podcast, which is on all the app stores. He's launched his YouTube channel, Alone with Buells. He's also been posting his at-home tips on Twitter and Instagram at Sam Buelly. As always, a big thank you to Matt for making this happen. A big thank you to all our listeners for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. G'day, mate. Hello, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? So good. How are you? All right, mate. Just making my way my way through another day here in Spain in lockdown. Well, sense of lockdown anyway. Saturday morning, a couple of coffees down my throat, ready to go. What time is it? Twelve o'clock, midday, morning for me. So have you been out on the um, out riding? No, I woke up about an hour and a half ago, um, and I've just been cruising, listening to music, getting ready for this. Probably going to have a day off today. I did. Uh, Big, big adventure on the gravel bike yesterday. Knocked out a bit over five hours. Got lost. Um, I was sort of planning on doing about a three-hour gravel ride, but then I got I got lost at some point, and then it ended up being nearly five and a half hours. So I need a recovery day. I need another lockdown to recover from it. I reckon. <laughs> so, so what what are the rules at the moment? Uh, pros can train uh, pretty much as normal now. Um, we have to stay in our province of Girona, which is a huge province anyway. You never you'd never train outside of outside of the Girona province, so it's not an issue for us. And then uh, everyone else is exercising. They, they've got time slots, so 6 till 10 in the morning and then 8 till 11 at night you can exercise outside. So it's a pretty good vibe in town, actually, to be fair. Um, I don't know how, what it's going to – the effect it's going to have on the, on, the, on the virus. Obviously, so many people exercising at the same time, but it's a, good, it's a bloody good vibe. Have people outside again. Everyone's happy. Weather's good. Um, so, yeah. That's the state of it at the moment. Yeah. And is it, like, was that first ride amazing? Yeah, it was actually. I, 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 we, we, on Monday was the first day we were allowed to go outside. And unfortunately, I'd signed up for the Zwift race like a week prior before I knew we were allowed to go outside. So my first day of being able to go outside I was on Zwift. Oh, <laughs> so no. then it, it, was, it was delayed a day, but yeah, it was, it was, it was good to be out. Definitely felt that I, uh, I lost a bit of form, um, but no, it was, it was just nice to be outside again. Because we like we don't really have a, quite a grasp for it here, and all it's like we've we've all, we've had uh, we haven't been able to ride with groups, but you've been able to go out with one other person. So we've kind of we've been in inside in isolation, but not quite to the extent that you guys have. Um, so yeah. that that first ride was amazing. Yeah, I guess like I mean Australia and New Zealand. I guess with all the criticism that. Scomo got for the way he handled it. He actually got pretty. He actually got pretty lucky in the end. Um, mm. 
So I guess I guess he did do some things right. Maybe was he shutting down the the, the border from Ch- or the Chinese Chinese um, flights and stuff early on, and then you guys were in a in a position where you could still exercise outside. And lots of countries took different approaches. You know, there was countries in Europe that had had a pr- had it pretty bad as well, but they they were still allowed to exercise. And um, obviously in Spain, they took the pr- approach of just locking everyone inside, which was probably necessary to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a long it was a long seven weeks. That's for sure. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go crazy on the home trainer, um, but it was still enough to make me want to get outside, and sort of, it sort of made me realise. I mean, r- riding a bike and racing a bike for so long now, you always have those periods where you think to yourself, "Ah, oh, how much longer am I going to do this for?" Or you know, things become a bit monotonous or monotonous, however you say that word. And um, <laughs> um, it sort of made me appreciate the fact that I really do enjoy riding my bike at, at whatever level, whether it's competitive or just been outside and so it was a it was a good buzz to be outside i wasn't up for doing too much the first couple of days just um probably didn't really have the fitness to but yeah like i said i forced myself to do five hours on the gravel bike yesterday and certainly feeling it today yeah nice can, can you catch up with mates nah, not, nah nah not yet um so i think from monday most of spain's going into the next phase which does allow um gatherings of 10 people and i think some of the bars are opening their terraces to like 50% capacity or something. But we just found out yesterday that Catalonia or parts of Catalonia, which includes Girona, aren't ready to do that yet. So we could be looking at another week or two before we can start to socialise. So um, it's nice to see your pretty face on here and we'll talk to someone different. <laughs> you've, uh, you've found content in your, uh, in your time off. You've... Uh burst onto the Twitter scene. You're now a YouTuber and hosting your own podcast. Yeah. Shit, I never thought I'd do that, to be fair. I always looked at these, like, social media influences, and uh, I guess I was always active on social media, but not to the extent that I have been over the last couple of weeks. But I just got to the point where I was like, I need to do something. Um, and I guess I sort of appreciated, like, the, the feedback. And you can see how it becomes addictive for those influencers, you know, when they get all their likes and all their comments and all that stuff. And, like, I sort of did feed off that a little bit. And then, um, I mean, it just started off as a joke when I did those cooking shows. I was just sending it to a couple of mates. And then one night I did one, and then I probably had enough beers in me that I was confident to put it on you know, on, on Instagram. And then, yeah, it sort of kicked off from there. And sort of I'm running out of steam a bit now, though, now that I'm outside and getting a bit active and a little bit more busy. So... I need to find some uh, inspiration to get a couple more out, I reckon. Well, we have, we have, we've got a couple of listener questions. One, one of them was, has your dating game gone through the roots since you put out there your prowess in the kitchen and your ability to clean and, like, is your, you're real, you're the full package. Well, I put a tweet out, actually, a few weeks ago saying that I needed, when the lockdown ended, the first thing I was going to do was get a dog and then the second thing was try find a missus. Um, I've had a few applications, but... <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't we can't do any socialising. So, I don't know how how keen I am on a virtual relationship, or rather, the real thing. So, um, I don't know. Let's see. Eh? Like, I, I created a pretty good image of a clean house, but to be fair, it's not as clean as it, people may think after those videos. Do you, Do you live by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Me, me, and a few plants. How have you How have you found having a podcast? Having a YouTube can. It's hard, eh? We, we, <clears throat> George and I, well, about five years ago, we were sitting in a pub with, with Jonesy, with Dan Jones, who's, who's sort of pushing the buttons behind the scenes for our podcast. And 
he said to us that we should we should launch a podcast and this was about five four or five years ago and we kind of toyed with the idea for ages and we had a couple of trial runs but we could just never really find our our footing you know like it, it's hard, it was harder than i thought to to be able to come up with stuff and i mean we're still pretty rusty um but we're getting there slowly and it was it was just a good opportunity to start to start it now like there was no excuse for people not to listen there was no excuse not to get guests on like you know you can you could ask someone to come on and they easily have an excuse but they didn't have any excuses now like everyone's stuck inside so we thought it was an opportune time to to get into it and i'm really enjoying it actually um it's gonna yeah we're gonna we're obviously gonna kick on with it um the, the, the theme of the show is probably going to change a little bit um and when we developed it the the, the name the social distance podcast we kind of thought ah uh, sort of lends itself towards the current situation but we we figure we'd be able to we'll be able to um find another angle and kick on with it going forward so yeah i'm looking forward to getting into getting into it a little bit more did it did the time off make you think about what cycling would look or what your life would look like without cycling yeah it did it made me <clears throat> i was actually speaking with um daryl Olympia the other day about it and i guess um a lot of my friends over here are a few years behind imps and i in terms of the length of their career or towards the end of their career and you know, Imps and I are probably in our last third of our career. And I guess, like, when, you, when you're a professional athlete for so long and, and you, have, you always have goals and you're always working towards something, even if it's the off-season, you still know that in January you're going to be racing again and there's a certain thing you need to do in October, November, December to get ready for that. And then we went into this holding pattern of having no idea when, when cycling was going to resume, if there was going to be any races, um, what the calendar was going to look like. And, and then you... So for the first time in a long time, I was in a position where I didn't really have anything to work, work towards. And I felt like pretty shit about that. And then, so it made me realize that when I do decide to stop or the, people, the powers that be decide that it's time for me to stop, um, I, I definitely need to be in a position where I'm going to go straight into something else. Because, mm. you know, there's always that dream of like, oh, you know, maybe I'll take six months off and just cruise and find myself and go to Machu Picchu and do all that kind of crap. But in reality, like it's not that fun when you haven't got something to work, walk to work towards. So I think when, when my time does come, which is hopefully still a few years away, I'd like to be set up and, and have a plan of what I'm going to go into next and step straight into it because otherwise you're going to end up in those holding patterns again that I found out aren't as enjoyable as you may think. Yeah. I think, um, I did a podcast with Gero back when he was banking and it was like, wow, like talking to him about it. He's like, yeah, he had it sorted from like years out. Yeah. Um, and like, look at his career. It was unreal. And he still had things dialed pretty much from the get go when he finished. Do you have any idea of what you do, where you go? Uh, I don't know. I've, I've toyed with, I've never really thought about it to be fair. Um, I guess like when you first start <clears throat> being a professional, you're, like I signed pro when I was 22 years old or something like that. And at that point, you don't think about um, what you're going to do if that doesn't, if it doesn't work out because you're still young enough that if it doesn't work out in a couple of years' time, you can go to university or, or you can set yourself up in a different way because you're young. And then you go through that middle period of your career when you're in your late 20s or whatever where you're, you're a little bit more established, you feel a little bit more secure of being, being professional. Um, the contracts, oh, they don't come easy, but the if, as long as you keep doing what you're doing, you, you feel safe enough that you will have a contract at the end of the year or whatever. So you don't think about it then. And then you get into your, um, the last part of your career in your early 30s or your mid-30s 
And then you, you finally realize, shit, man, this, this isn't going to go forever. And you've got to start thinking about what I'm going to do. And so only the last year or so, I started to think about it. And I don't want to think about it too much because I don't want to take away my focus from what I'm doing at the moment. And like I say, I want to, I'd like to do this for a few more years yet. Um, so I have been thinking about what I'm interested in, at least, um, whether or not I follow that path. But just, yeah, just trying to think what I'm interested in, what, what um, could be a viable option when I when I sort of wind down my career in a couple of years' time. So, yeah, I don't know yet. I don't really know. I don't really have an answer at the moment, but um, sort of making my way through that, that route at the moment. Dabbling in uh, YouTuber, influencer, <laughs> yeah. content extraordinaire. Yeah, I don't know if I can do that. I thought, like, for, for a couple of weeks there, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll just become like this, like, next-level journalist or something. But then... <laughs> Then I realized that like after about three weeks, it's actually pretty easy to run out of ideas, especially when you're not that creative. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. don't know about that. I do, I do quite enjoy um, that sort of that side of things, though. Um, journalism and stuff. I've always been kind of interested in that. So whether or not there's a pathway just to remain in cycling, I would quite like to remain in cycling. Um, certainly, maybe not forever, but certainly for a period, I, I could see myself um, being a director for a few years after cycling or, or um, I'd really like to work with, with young guys. Uh, um, I enjoy helping young people and, and trying to guide them the best I can <clears throat> with the knowledge that I have. So that, that would be something I'd be pretty interested in as well. Um, whether or not there's a role for that in, in teams or, or what, I don't know. But um, the, world's, the world of cycling and the world in general is forever evolving and there's always roles being created in different things. So uh, we'll see what happens when, it, when the time comes. Mm. It's interesting you're talking about your, the perspective from day one to where you're at now. Did you start cycling with Lance Armstrong? Yeah, I did, yeah. So when I, in 2009, I, I, had, I was pretty new to the road. I'd been riding the track that whole time. And um, after the Beijing Olympics in 2008, I, I sort of decided that I wanted to explore the road as well. I, I had my, my, my sights set on London Olympics as well, but I wanted to build a career on the road um, because I knew that the track wasn't going to be really financially viable to do for a long time. And also it's, it's more or less a young man's sport these days. So I needed to, to look at what I was going to do. And um, in 2009, Lance started a team. It was, it was the year that he came back with Astana and he started a team in America called Livestrong. And it was an under-23 team, and he wanted to, to develop this team that was going to um, um, build young riders up and racing predominantly in, in the States. And then um, he obviously had his plan to, st to start Team Radio Shack the year after that, and he wanted, to, he wanted to have a feeder team effectively for Radio Shack. So I spent a year on there in 2009. Um, I sort of got onto that team through a couple of different connections. I was sponsored by Trek at the time in New Zealand, and Trek was obviously the bike sponsor for that team. Um, I was friends with Taylor Finney and he, he sort of helped me out a little bit as well. And then I ended up on that team and I had a good, a good season over there in the States. And then, um, and then Lance and Brunel started Team Radio Shack in 2010 and Lance was adamant he wanted to bring a couple of guys from his development team into that squad. And um, I certainly wasn't the best bike rider on that team, but I think I was, you know, I was probably I was the oldest guy on the team, um, <clears throat> maybe a little bit more mature than some of those 18-year-old kids. Um, not that I was mature, um, <laughs> and and yeah, so yeah, I got a job on on Radio Shack. So then I started in 2010 with with Lance, and actually did quite a bit with him. I did a couple of training camps with him, 
Um, I did a couple of races with him, a race in France and then a tour of Luxembourg in, in June just before they went to the Tour de France. So that was a pretty, it was a pretty fire experience because obviously Lance was my, well, he, his era was when I was a young kid watching the Tour de France. You know, you get guys that are 14 or 15 years old now watching the Tour de France and, and they see the guys like Froome and Thomas and the Yates boys and all that. For me, it was Lance and Ulrich and all those people. And then, and then when Lance retired, I, I never thought that he'd race again or certainly that I would race with him. So it was a pretty, it was quite cool um, to be on a team with him and sort of learn a little bit from him. And um, he was a different guy when he came back. You know, obviously you hear all those stories about him being a bit of an asshole and treating people pretty badly um, when he was dominating the Tour de France back in those days. So, but when he came back, it was for a different agenda and he was much, he was, he was, I, I found him good to work with. Um, he certainly was never bad to me and, um, yeah, it was it was a it was a pretty cool experience. And like like Lance is a rock star. So yeah. Like was it was it weird? Was it weird entering the sport with that kind of personality and that, a guy with that kind of status on your squad? Mate, he was a hitter. Eh? He was a he was a hitter. I remember this like, training camp. We, we had a training camp in America in December um, before the 2010 season, and like he was just a rock star there. You know, we had to have security following us. Um, when we were out training and and then uh, I went to the Tour of Luxembourg with him in June and he flew in on a private jet. Um, <laughs> we, we, me and, me and Daryl Impey were road 25 on Ryanair paying for our baggage, chicken baggage or whatever. And and then uh, it was his son's first birthday um, when, when we were at Tour of Luxembourg, Max. And he was in the States with, with uh, Lance's um, girlfriend at the time or whatever, the mother of Max. And halfway through the race, he sent the private jet back to the back to uh, the States to pick them up and flew them over so that he could have a birthday cake with Max at the, at the dinner table halfway through a tour of Luxembourg. So, yeah, he was, he was on another level, just flying around in his own plane. And, yeah, he was a rock star. Yeah. And, and like, how did you find that as a 22-year-old? You kind of walk into this squad, walk into this professional league, and you maybe had the most media attention any cycling teams ever had on them. I just shut my mouth and just hid behind the closed doors <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I was a pretty small fish in a big pond then like that team was full of full of guys from you know big big names like we had Andreas Cloden Levi Leipheimer um, Lance Yaroslav Popovich you know all the all the boys from all of Lance's guys you know so it was it was a big team and it was certainly had a lot of media attention certainly because Lance was making his comeback as well and he was trying to win a Tour de France again um oh. And I was just this young Kiwi boy from Rotorua who basically just stepped off riding mountain bikes and riding track bikes to being on this team. And I, I enjoyed it, though. Um, I, we went mountain biking at a training camp in Tucson, Arizona, and I was, I was still quite handy on the mountain bike then because I'd grow, coming from Rotorua, obviously, growing up just mountain biking in the forest there. And so I, although I kept, my, kept to myself when we were on the mountain bike, I, I like to try to give, a, give it a bit of a crack and... Um, Actually pushed Lance on a couple of downhills. Uh, it was so it was a bit of fun. Yeah. Did he did he look after you a little bit because you were the little strong boys? You were, or well, one young, but also you were from his feeder squad. Yeah, he did. He was he was he was obviously on his own. Um, he had his own agenda, and he he had his own little group of guys that they were building up purely for the Tour de France. So um, that was what consumed most of his time. But he was. He did look after us. There was me and I think uh, there was two of us that went from the team 
trying to live stronger, you're into Radio Shack. So we were sort of hanging out a bit together and obviously Lance could see that we didn't know anybody and we were a bit bit starstruck or, you know, a bit a bit nervous about the company we were in. So he was he was always pretty accommodating to making us feel comfortable and um sort of had our backs a little bit if anyone gave us shit. I remember going back to the tour of Luxembourg there, um, Daryl Impey was in the team and we we were we were riding the front for Lance on the second stage, I think it was. And Lance didn't even have the leaders jersey, but he was still arrogant enough to think that he was going to he was going to win the Tour of Luxembourg. So we were riding the front, Daryl Impey and I, and we we got dropped about forty k to go. And the Tour of Luxembourg's real bizarre with their time cuts. They just have like a set time cut. They don't have a percentage like most races. It's just like twenty minutes every day or something. And we didn't know that, so we just cruised in. And Johan Brunier was the director there, and. He drove past us and was like, yeah, good job, boys. Just ride in, you know, another big day tomorrow. And we missed the time cut in the end. So we were out of the race <laughs> after <laughs> two days. And then um, we had the dinner table that night and Johan came in and he was pissed. And he like, he ripped the head off, ripped our heads off, Daryl and I. And we were just sitting there like all sheepish, like we didn't do anything wrong, man. We just, we did what, you, what we were asked. And Lance backed us up there, which was pretty cool. He even went on Twitter there and said, you know, that, it was it was a rough time cut and we did a good job and everything. So he sort of he didn't come down on us hard, he did the opposite actually and sort of had our backs and stood up for us and what we'd done from that day. Yeah. Did you party with him? <clears throat> nah, never party with him. I think that's in a pretty exclusive club. Yeah, wasn't That's wasn't for the private with. jet members. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wasn't in that group, unfortunately. And then now now in your role in the team, um is part of that mentoring the younger athletes? Not mentoring, yeah. but taking them on a little bit. Yeah, sure. I think I think um, like mentoring or um, helping young guys and things like that, or leadership, I guess you might call it. I think that sort of stuff comes naturally. Um, you can't really force somebody to do it um, if that's not their personality. But I, I really enjoy doing that, and I guess now I have enough years of experience. I've been through. Um, I've been in teams that have been close to winning Grand Tours. I've been in teams that have won Parry Bay. I've been in teams that have got their heads absolutely kicked in. And I've also dealt with injuries and things like that. And the, the beauty of our team is we've got so many young guys, super talented young guys, but they're all really level-headed guys. Um, they're all nice guys. They're good guys to work with. Um, and they want to learn. So it makes it easy to, to sort of offer assistance and develop a rapport or a friendship even. Um, so I really enjoy doing that and sort of has become a little bit naturally a, a role that, I've, that, I've, that I'm doing in that team now. Mm. What, what is it? Like I talked to a couple of people, Edmo and Lucas in your team, and they're like, man, this team is just hands down the business. It's just the culture, man. Like it was when the team started, it was, that was the number one thing. Obviously, the team wanted to be successful. Uh, there's no sports team that doesn't want to be successful. And, and Jerry, Ryan, the, um, he's, he's a competitive guy and he wants to succeed as well, and he, like he has in his businesses. And he sets up the sports team and he wants it to be successful. But the number one thing for him was, um, was developing a culture. And, and he, he truly believed that developing a culture, having the right people involved in the team, from the management all the way down to the riders, um, would then breed success. You know, if we had a good rapport on the team, if everybody got on, if we had fun, and that, that culture's just grown stronger and stronger over the years. And um, a lot of those guys that were on the team those first couple of years are no longer on the team, but we still have 
we still have basically the same um, staff, the same management, the same mechanics, same swaneurs. And then we have a handful of guys on the team that have been there since the start. And obviously the team's focus has changed over the years as well. Now we're quite heavily focused on trying to win grand tours. And that brings different, different personalities. Uh, those GC guys are quite different to, to um, the rest of us. <laughs> but um, but the culture's... Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The culture's always been embedded in, in this team and, and that will never fade. And that, that's what creates just such a great atmosphere in a team when you know we, we sort of stand together in success and we stand together in failure. And it makes it easy if you have a crap day on the bike to, to get up and get out there again the next day. And, and I think it's because we're friends as well. It's really easy to, to um, for lack of a better expression, twist a nut to, uh, to help your mate, you know, rather than just a teammate or whatever. Being you're able to ride, ride outside now. You've got a calendar that the UCI has put out. Um, is, what does that calendar mean? I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to think of it. I just I can't get past the point of like seeing how bad it still is in Europe and some parts of the world. Um, yeah, and then potentially racing, like putting hundreds of people in one spot. Yeah, I guess the the first thing that calendar means that is if we do race, it's going to be bloody busy for three months. Um, <laughs> I'd hate I'd hate to be Whitey or Shane and uh, those guys behind the scenes that have to organise the the rosters and the logistics and everything because. It's going to be a hectic few months. Um, you've, there's never, ever been a race program so, so congested, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the next question is whether or not it happens. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, like, yeah, it's still pretty bad over here. But things are starting to ease. Countries are starting to open up again. Um, like you say, we can train outside now, so that's a step in the right direction. But the most important thing, I think, with that calendar is um, it's something to work towards again. Uh, like I said earlier on, it's, it was really hard to, to not have a focus and not have a goal. And in reality, we're not going to know if, the, if Strata Bianchi can happen on the 1st of August until sometime much closer. Um, but it gives us a chance now to at least have a plan to prepare for the next three months, to have some structure and training and work towards something again. And then we just have to hope that it does happen. And I think, I think there will be racing this year. Um, whether or not it's exactly as that calendar says, it's a, it's a different discussion. But I think certainly there's going to be racing at some point this year, and um, I certainly hope there will be because it's 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 almost uh, it, has, it has to happen for our sport that we have to do some racing this year. Yeah, as um has team management talked to you at all about what it might look like, what you you as an individual or as a team as a whole, what the structure might look like of as you pointed out there's a lot of races in a very short period of time yeah no i haven't i haven't spoken to anyone in the team yet about about the race program for, for me personally and i don't think the team really knows what's going to happen um as a whole with, when it comes to rosters for races obviously there's going to be some big changes this year the Giro was a really big focus for the team simon yates was going to be going there as the leader we had a super strong team to support him and then, uh, and then there was obviously the Olympics and things like that. Now there's no Olympics. Now the Giro's in October. The Tour de France is going to be undoubtedly the most important race for, for any team in cycling now because that's the race that where teams and sponsors get most of their exposure. Um, so it's going to be 
pretty important that teams are successful there. Um, so I would imagine things are going to change in terms of the focuses around uh, the importance of the Giro compared to the Tour de France or, or vice versa. So at the moment, I'm sure Whitey's got his head in the, head in the books and spending 10 hours a day on the laptop um, trying to move, move, move the jigsaw, yeah, move the jigsaw pieces. So we'll, I'm sure we'll find out in, in the next couple of weeks, but at the moment we're, we're, uh, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen. Yeah, do you go home normally over summer or yep. winter or whatever you want to look at? Yeah, I haven't missed, haven't missed a summer in New Zealand. Um, I've, it's, it's changed over the years. When I, when I first turned pro, I used to be on a plane the next day after my last race, you know, so I'd be back in New Zealand in October or whatever. Um, but now, now as I've spent more and more time over here and set myself up more here, I do consider this to be my home for the, for the time being. Um, when I go home, I stay with the old man, which is, which is all good, but there's a, there's a time, time limit on that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I, I, I spend, I still go home, but the last couple of years I've spent, um, I've only spent like up three or four weeks um, back in New Zealand. Normally I go home end of December, just before Christmas or something. This last season I went home a little bit earlier because we had that wedding in Adelaide that we were both on the booze at. Um, so I was, I was home a little bit earlier than I would have normally been. Um, and then this year, who knows, man? Like, it could be, this could be the year that I don't go home because... You could be racing in December could be racing all the way till December and then obviously the, there could be still huge travel restrictions. Uh, New Zealand borders could still be closed and it would mean that I'd have to go spend two weeks in a hotel quarantine when I got back there and whether or not I'd want to do that. <clears throat> if I was only going to go home for a month, I don't want to spend half that time in a hotel. So yeah. uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, this could be the year I do my first European Christmas. Do you, do you see yourself going back after cycling? I don't know. I think ultimately I will. Yeah, I think ultimately I'll end up living in New Zealand. But I'm not ready to do that anytime soon. Uh, I love it over here. I love the lifestyle. Um, I have set myself up here and I really enjoy being in Europe. Um, I enjoy the Spanish lifestyle. And uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to stay here for a, for a little bit longer. Even when I stop cycling, hopefully I can find a role in a team or a job that allows me to stay here for, for another five or, five or ten years. But then I think ultimately... I will go back to New Zealand. Um, when, I, when I was home this, this summer or last summer, I, I had a really good time, enjoyed it, sort of started to remember the good things about New Zealand and um, still got a good group of friends over there. So I did really enjoy it. And that was sort of the first summer where I thought, yeah, I could see myself living back here. So, yeah, I think ultimately I will end up back there, but I don't know when. To wrap things up, you've had a... Um... It's such a lo you've had a long career. Look at your pro cycling stats. You uh you were there from the start. What 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 would you tell a Sam Buley, fresh out of Livestrong, heading into Radio Shack, and Neo Pro? I don't know what I'd tell myself. I'd pro I I think the first thing I would do actually I reckon the thing that I would change is I would I would commit to being in Europe. Um, when I first came here. For me, it was, it was just, uh, I just needed a roof over my head. Nothing was permanent. I was just here to race my bike. And as soon as I didn't need to race my bike in Europe, I was going back to New Zealand because that's where I wanted to be. And I wasn't. So, so it took me two or three years to really set myself up over here in Europe. And as soon as I did that, things became much easier. I was much more relaxed. I was more happy in my, in my space here. 
I was more integrated in the community in the community and um it just made things lots a lot easier it made it being away from home being away from friends and family a lot easier and those first couple of years I sort of dragged my feet around a little bit thinking you know do I really want to be here I, I don't really enjoy it that much I, I miss home I miss my friends I miss my family and that made it it made it harder you know I, I didn't go out and meet people I didn't go and integrate with locals or or go to like local restaurants and bars and things like that. I kind of just kept to myself and it made it difficult. So if I was talking to a young Sam or telling, talking to a young guy that's in the same position now, I'd probably say like make an effort to integrate, um, get out, meet people, try to learn the language. That's another thing actually. The language took me a long time to get to any sort of level in Spanish because I just didn't make the effort. Um, if you make the effort, you can, you you can, can actually have it I can speak it all right, yeah, but still not, still not as good as I should after living in Girona for eleven years. <laughs> as in, could you make could you make conversation? Like, what what kind of level are we? Yeah, yeah, probably doesn't make sense half the time, but I'm certainly I can have a, I have a, can have a conversation. Um, I wouldn't be passing any Spanish exams, that's for sure. And I um, mix a lot of words up and everything, but I get my point across. Does it so, pick up after a few few beers? Yeah, for sure. I can even speak French after a few beers. <laughs> <laughs> but I lose my English. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Sam. Well, um, what I'd be really keen to do a, um, a full Sam Buley podcast when we're in person back in Oz, hopefully racing the Australian summer. Um, and, yeah, all the, all the best for the rest of the year and I hope you, uh, hope you get to race your bike soon. Cheers, mate. Good to catch up. Sounds good. All right. All right. Take it easy.